Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR Community Radio. My name is Brendan Monsack, and joining me in the studio for a chat this morning and to share her work is poet and spoken word performer Astrid Mabani. Welcome to the studio. Thank you, Brendan. Would you like to start by reading us a poem? Yes, I will. Thank you. I will. Um, this is called Me Reflected in You. I saw her sitting on the floor, cross legs staring up at him in anguish. I saw myself in her. I walked past her, but I couldn't abandon myself, so I turned back and crouched down to her eye level, as you do with a child so they don't feel intimidated. Are you okay, young lady? I ask. Yes, she says. You sure? She starts crying and says I just broke up with my boyfriend. Don't make someone a priority who treats you as an option, I say. She says he did, but it was I who couldn't make him one. I say these things are hard, but true to ourselves we must stay, and I just saw so much of myself in you it made me sad. That's beautiful, she said. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for stopping. I had to, I say. Can I have a hug, she says. Of course, I say. And I wrap my arms around younger me and hold her so close and whisper soothing, cooing sounds as I stroke her back. We finally step back from each other, tears and snot everywhere. I'm Astrid, by the way. I'm Alana. Pleased to meet such a courageous woman, Alana. This is amazing, she says. I will never forget you. We girls got to stick together, huh? Yes, we do, I say. Are you going to be okay, she asks. I will be, I tell her as I turn and walk away, thanking God that this time I stop to acknowledge my pain. Is this something that happens to you a lot? I do, but the practical side of my mind tells me that I shouldn't be crazy to just interject into people's lives. And yet there's the part of me that is um, strongly drawn to certain situations. Um, I'm an observer of people. And an empath, by the sounds of it. And an empath, <laughs> yes. yes. I, I think that we're so caught up with um, trying to attain this mythical picture that society presents us um, to aspire to that as much as I mean it's it's better than it was before the promotion of the individual and you being yourself but still people feel like they failed if they don't you know have the partner or the um, 
um, the Holden uh, and the two and a half kids and the cat and the dog. And and really, it's really an urban legend if you align with yourself because, you know, we all have our own destiny and path. And so how is that going to look the same if, you know, I'm supposed to find my way in life? And I believe that the world needs us to turn up differently because otherwise we'll be boring duplicates of each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I love this this um, exit of um, Marianne Williamson that Nelson Mandela used in his um, inauguration speech. It said, um, when we don't allow ourselves to be who we are, we do others a disservice. So when we do... We give others permission to do the same. So it's that, you know, catalytic effect that we have on each other as humans, which I find absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I love it. You're from South Africa? Yes, I am. When did you move here? I moved here in March the 11th, 2007. How did you get into the arts in Melbourne? Pan-African Poets Cafe. I went down there uh, one, I think it was a Saturday afternoon, and met Zai and the, the fact that we're both from the south of Africa and uh, there was just this immediate connection. And uh, I'd been writing for a while, but I haven't performed at that time. And uh, from there, it, it, it took off. I sort of, you know, went to more... Um, poetry gigs and then I uh, did some training that um, that I organized like maybe a year or so later and from there I thought hey I've got um, I think I have enough work to actually compile this into a book and that's what I did which is Ramblings of a Unique Mind. Yes, that's right. Which was launched last August, year. August, August last year, yeah. yeah. This is where it comes back to human connection, hey. I actually become emotional when I think about it. So in that room that day was literally the representation of my life. People from all walks of my life. So I had like the creative world people there. I had my oldest friends there. I had people from my church there. I had people from my, so I um, train in psychodrama as well, which is a um, an action-based form of self-exploration and um, therapy. And probably one of the greatest things was that my son performed with me as well. So... Uh, Two of his poems are also in my book. Um, and it was only while sharing some of my poetry with him that I discovered that he was writing too. That was a lovely surprise for me. Mm. You write a lot in your book, you write a lot about um, men and masculinity yes. and in particular relationships between women and men. Yes. When you think about your relationships with men and masculinity, does that influence the way you raise your son? Very definitely. I think particularly, you know, patriarchal cultures, you can't talk to a man 
when the man's already a man. I mean, you can, but there's so much that is already established. It has to be done as the child is growing up. I can honestly say that I... I like my son as a person. I often tell him, even if you weren't my kid, you're a nice person. I like you. I could hang out with you. You know, you're fine. You, you're. Um, he's genuinely a lover of people. He's he's the protective side of him is is very much heightened, as far as women are concerned, and and that's one of the roles. Which is where I question myself, where sometimes am I out of sync with society? Because that's one of the things as a woman that, you know, I I turn to a man too. Uh, So we don't um, necessarily get protected from cyber-toothed lions and, you know, but emotionally making choices that will not put her in direct harm's way just through my choices you know as a man or and of course I came to understand that if I have that expectation then I have to learn what is the workings of a man's mind it's only fair since fairness is what I'm pursuing so I am starting to talk to a whole lot more men quite candidly and there's very little who men who are willing to talk to you quite candidly. (laughs) You come to a certain stage of closeness and then there's corners or places, you know, where he retreats to his cave. And you just, you know, you can stand at the entrance all you want and, you know, call, but he will come out or not come out when he's ready. You know, they're taught to be guarded about their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings. You know, uh, um, I refuse to to give up on this woman-man situation. <laughs> I want to understand it because I think we need the same thing. We, we Our basic need as human beings are love, belonging, and acceptance. And... Um, if we have the same need, then how come we're missing the boat so much with each other? Men get just as wounded as women. It just manifests differently. You know, the anger, the disconnect, the Psh, I don't care, um, and, and retreating so and offering nothing of the self, which um, can leave uh, him impotent in a certain way and um, and what um, I found myself doing is instead of coming to that with curiosity coming to it with criticism and I don't want to do that anymore because I, I really I, you know I love my brothers come on <laughs> we need each other you know so yeah So going back to raising a boy. Well, I started very early to have really open, candid conversations with him. And in his adolescence, there would be frequent eye rolling, you know, because, uh, yeah, he just didn't want to go there. But I explained to him that um, my role as a parent is to prepare him for life. And one of those ways is equipping him with emotional intelligence. So we, you know, 
awkward things have to be spoken about too and frequently he would try to interject yeah yeah i know about that already i'm like no actually okay so what do you know oh my friends told me about it or we discussed this at the youth group or we did this and i would still say okay but you know my role is to give you the all the information and then you can make informed choices and telling him why inquiring from him what he thinks he wants our relationship to look like and using the language of identifying emotions when he went into adolescence and everybody's like oh you know it's going to be a terrible time oh you know these aliens um coming to your house when they you know adolescent and you don't see them for years your child is gone or that you get his grunts so i was like nah i'm i'm not going to that's not going to be my child so i prepared him for adolescence and his changing moods and what's happening to him and how he will feel like drawing away from me and the surges in testosterone and all that you know so i, I can be quite practical and pragmatic <laughs> <laughs> and he's he probably has shaken his head so many times at me like oh good lord i'm getting a clinical lecture but <laughs> it was part of my way of giving him the information to make sense and then i said well so i just want to inform you that the only people who throw doors in this house is those who pay the rent and if you are unhappy with me you can't sulk all day like you've had a funeral notice you know you can be mad at me for hours go to your room this is what you do you know what like really um soothes you or and that's also where i found out about the writing the music his creative side and um because that's how you learn to emotionally regulate yourself you know you see me when i come from work i'm right i'm irritable i take myself to time out and then when i'm fit for human contact i come out again so things like that where he can learn about his inner own inner landscape and how he operates um mm. you mentioned emotional language yes there. do you think that's something that uh you know men are not taught I think that a lot of people aren't taught it but men um seem to be more avoidant of it the way that shame manifests for men is not wanting to appear weak that's a man's biggest fear and so talking about emotions has the potential to appear weak so he's not going to go there unless he finds that yeah this is actually something that I want to do and it's going to benefit the relationship and reframe that you know concept of ooh this is all a bit mushy for me <laughs> I think writing is the best medicine that you know can heal you so quickly I want to talk about issues that we have in common between us because i recognize that in people they want this sense of community the sense of belonging the sense of yes he knows what i think about he knows what i'm talking about it was poetry by the workers for the workers about the workers work it's just about facing those truths in your life don't put away your story be the puzzle not the piece this is spoken word on 3cr community radio don't get me started the voice there of judith rodriguez who sadly passed this year 
our deepest condolences to her family and friends from the Spoken Word team. A much celebrated figure in the poetry world and sadly missed. This is the Spoken Word program on 3CR Community Radio. My name's Brendan Bonsack and I'm talking with Astrid Mabani today. This poem is related to understanding men and particularly black men. There is or was for me a mystery about how toxic masculinity plays out with black men, um, particularly in in lust and in uh, um, being seen as uh, symbols of fetishism or, you know, black men are, are viewed in largely in society um, as sexual beings, uh, which is not all that they are, you know, so... So this poem uh, is called The Lurking Manifestation of Forced Submission. In years gone by, shackled and shamed and feared, the black man was separated from his family because the white man knew a big secret. Remove the head and then the whole body suffers. The foundation of migrant labor. For a short while to family's freedom, long-term marriage to capitalism. Our men were hung, castrated. The strongest lion made an example of his head pierced on the pike of the white man's fence. The rest of the slaves bound in submission, even if at times feigned. If madam or master took a liking of the look of the houseboy or girl, they would have them. Commodities to rut with. Our men's prowess put on display. At times it was used to survive, for he saw the lust with which his black gold was leered at, yet cast aside in the light of day. Our mixed babies often killed at birth. Our sisters crying with no tears, her heart too shattered. A man who holds her heart is at madam and master's call. Dare he refuse, he'll be shipped off to another farm, another city, another country. Sometimes never to see his family again. I watch with tight chest, cracked tear ducts for they have run dry. As our men are still in capture by another master. Lust. He sows his seed randomly in fertile fields, pieces of his soul left behind in his wake, broken hearts and broken dreams, middle-of-the-night prayers from mothers, sisters, wives and lovers. God, may you save a generation from the curse of slavery started with our ancestors. The chains cannot be seen, but their links are just as strong. The lies flow from split tongues, venomous poison gradually numbing the conscience, until a woman's pain leaves him cold. He believes he does this to survive. It is the death of her. 
slowly killing not only the man who is wounded by his father, uncles and brothers who seem to show him no better. God save the man from his own lust, lest his generations remain in ruin. May he find your healing and your love, and may it flow into the cracks of his soul, for when the head is where it's meant to be, the whole body flourishes. This is a woman's prayer. Do you think men need to become closer to themselves? I do. I do. I think that unless a man knows himself and finds his own direction, it's hard for him to take up his role with a woman. And then both have unrealistic expectations of each other. I refuse to give up hope. I refuse because I do see changes. I do see moments of wanting to come closer both to women and to themselves. Mm. Looking for a gift for the lefty in your life this Christmas? 3CR has a range of publications, clothing, CDs, wine and other products available online or from the station. New items include the 2019 How to Make Trouble and Influence People Diary, which features a radical event in Australian history for each day of the year, as well as stories and images covering Indigenous Australian resistance, strikes, street art, convict escapes, creative direct action, blockades, protests and occupations. Also available is Fighting for Spaces, Fighting for Our Lives, a collection of essays, photographs and first-hand accounts about the squatting movements from around the world today. And On The Fly, an anthology which features dozens of stories, poems and songs originally produced by American hobos from the 1870s to the 1940s. Sale of these publications all help keep 3CR on air. For more information or to make a purchase, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. I see them at the bus stop, him first, reasonably attractive young black man. That's the only reason I notice him really. He gets in, moves to the back of the bus with that bouncy strut that young and confident bounce with. I remember a time when I liked a boy called Zachary Robertson who had a bouncy strut like that. A full minute almost passes, a young woman obviously pregnant, small pregnant porch, with a facial edema some pregnant women get, nose, lips, who to the ones who loves her looks damn cute. And I don't know how, but I instantly know that these two are together. Instantly something in me stiffens, is outraged. He didn't wait for her. He didn't help her on the bus. He's not by her side, but a full minute ahead of her. He'd probably been ahead of her all along, fast to make a connection. She's cute, a shorty, been quick to push for sex, so quick there was no time to talk about protection. Bombarding her senses with flattery and soft whispers, I'm sure. Her senses reeling, she didn't have a chance. He's probably well practiced at this game. They get off at the same stop as me. Again, he's ahead. He keeps on moving without a backward glance, looking for a lighter to light his cigarette. 
She stumbles to a standstill to see when he'll notice she's not following in his wake. He doesn't. I watch with aching heart as she tracks him with her eyes the way only children, pets and lovers do. He's gone. He's been long gone and I pray for the unborn child. I wonder what kind of atmosphere this little soul will be received in. I pray for the mama-to-be that she'll be strong enough to cope without baby daddy. Because he's gone, though she can still see him. And something in her knows it. You didn't interject in this one. No. When I see things like this, it's almost like, you know, those Matrix moments where, you know, you just zoom in and everything else like fades. And I just see these two people in motion. And something in me waits for a glimpse of hope that he will notice that he will respond that my sense is not right something wants me to be wrong now you work with uh, women mm. can you tell us about that through my work i've had opportunity to work with women but i think a large part of it is you know doing the work of coming closer to myself as a woman knowing who i am and then realizing that that's a journey that I feel I could have been better equipped with if things had been shared with me. And then I come to the realization that, you know, the women that's gone before me has done the best that they can and they've given me other things like tenacity and sass and, you know, perseverance and things like that but not necessarily knowledge of self. These women you're talking about, you're talking about your mother, your grandmother? My grandmother, my great-grandmother. Very strong, very powerful women um, who accompany me. Mm. Mm. They accompany me in a very strong way, especially my great-grandmother. My brother who came after me was unwell, and my mother had to frequently go to hospital with him. So I would have extended periods of time with my grandmother and my great-grandmother, who lived like three suburbs up from us. That was a very happy time in my life. I remember I had a white picket fence and my great-grandfather was a keen gardener, so there would be roses up, you'd open the gate. Um, and then there's the first left and then a long path and I always used to skip and run up there <laughs> because at the end there's a white stained glass door that I want to knock at so that my great-grandmother or my grandmother can open the door. They would give me practical skills, you know, um, I remember being 11 and my great-grandmother talking to me about priorities. You know, that's like the biggest, you know, lesson that stands out. But before that, it used to be, you know, when you come from school, you need to do this. But not really talking about, you know, things like, you know, you're, you're important or 
you're beautiful, you're, you know, you're perfect the way you are, don't you go worrying about if anybody else is, you know, maybe mean to you, or all those things that we in this generation have a lot more sense and notion of. And did you get any relationship advice from those people? None, none. Mostly what not to do, stay away from the boys was about as much as you got, which is impossible. <laughs> and neither do I have the inclination. <laughs> so that was as much. That was like the post when you first got your period talk. That was it. There was nothing further in adolescence, nothing, in, not even a, a pre-marriage talk or anything like that, which in other cultures, you know, there would be a preparation and stuff like that. I, I basically, you know, life taught me, which mm, pain and loss are two very, like, harsh teachers. I don't want them to be my teachers anymore. <laughs> I've sacked them. <laughs> <laughs> so you say you, you carry them with you yes yes I do especially in, in periods of difficulty or when I need to call on wisdom I imagine I am not by myself I am not doing this alone my great-grandmother or my grandmother or even my mother Mm, they're all cheering me on, you know, saying you can do this, Astrid, you know. There's no need for you to be fearful or some of the things that they would say would come to me. And you talk about God a lot in your work as well. Yes, what, I do. What's your relationship with God? Look, my relationship with the big guy completely changed when I came to Australia. I think that's when I really got to know him. So I grew up in a Christian home. And uh, my grandmother was actually a pastor. Um, I grew up with waking up at uh, sometimes four thirty, five o'clock, hearing my great-grandmother pray. Uh, she was an intercessor. She would pray for other people. Um, but I would often hear her pray for the family, and she'd be putting on her Jim Reeves or Jimmy Swaggart's <laughs> records, you know, quietly. But because the war was so thin, I, I would a year, and also I would go to the toilet and then peek in because she left her door open a little bit. And then she would be sitting on the bed, you know, early morning with her Bible, um, her scarf on her head, very traditional Christian woman, uh, and listening to her Jim Reeves and Jimmy Swaggart. And so I became aware of spirituality like that, but largely experienced it through them, not really for myself. And I would say that I started talking to God directly when I came here. I'm like, okay, so there's nobody here. My family's not here. My friends are not here. You're the only person who's here. If you are so real and so great, you better start turning up. <laughs> you know, and I would have these conversations with him instead of him being like the Sunday person that you hear about while, you know, the pastor or the priest is giving the sermon and then you're like, all right, cheers, see you next week or whenever I'm back. Now it's a day-to-day -day thing that I have a conversation with him. Even tell him about my wants, needs and desires and things that, you know, otherwise I would have thought as a child that maybe I'd be like struck by whatever, which is another thing that I 
you know, that changed for me. I, I reckon that people confuse Zeus and God all the time. He's not the one with the lightning. Um, I think that he's pretty loving father. That's how I see him. So I can speak to him because he knows my mind anyway. So d- does he speak back or is it more just the that you're speaking to him? Um. So dreams are one of the ways in which he, he communicates with me. And I sometimes hear a voice in my head. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's a great idea. So even around my creativity, yeah, um, and and things that I want to do. Like the ultimate muse. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't have a, a, a greater um director assistant music <laughs> your your performance style do you think that was influenced by your family's role My, in the church i i think it's a combination of nature and nurture i think that i will, you know being the first child i suspect that i got a lot of attention and um, my mother uh, just reminded me yesterday how much she wanted me and doted on me I was a very confident child and and that's translated into adulthood as well that I you know don't have a lot of fear about presenting myself uh in front of people and especially when I'm convicted so this is where my dad's cuz dad was an activist um when I am convicted about what I want to convey what activism was your father involved in so he was uh in the apartheid era um he he was uh involved in what was called the UDF at that time United Dep- Democratic Front but also <laughs> bless him dad used to walk around everywhere informing people of their rights which used to annoy and embarrass the heck out of me simple thing like um so we have um taxis that are minivans in South Africa and they would load like 14 people in there and then you know sometimes they would try and get like 15 16 people in there and get people like you know to sit so uncomfortably and stuff like that you want to get home and then you know your your decision is do you get into this like crammed van or not and dad would just go one you know that that's illegal too you're paying good money you know you deserve to be comfortably delivered to your home why are you going to concede with this you know person's illegal activity and i'll be just like let the woman be daddy she just wants to get home you know <laughs> but now i'd have to say i'm probably a bit like that to my horror <laughs> like letting people know you know or at least point them in the direction of knowledge that can empower them is this part of the work you do with women absolutely absolutely so in february i'll be co-facilitating a group with a creative arts therapist called women know thyself and i think that that theme itself you know speaks to what i believe in that it's important for a woman to know herself knows her inner workings and what she needs mm. 
Can you remember the the day that apartheid was lifted? I do because we were there were televisions in the in the class and we were all watching Nelson Mandela walking up on the stage and the crowds just roared, you know. Um and it was such an emotional day. But before that because of dads being so much out there, I used to in high school when the there used to be rallies, you know, for the um, young people and stuff like that, and boycotts and sit-ins and all that. I would keep myself very much out of it until this uh, one day. Then we were in year eleven, I think, or year twelve, and we decided, right, there's very little of school left. I think that we need to get with the program. Let's all go. And that day, what happened that we ended up being chased by police uh, and chased with shambox. And that was the first time that I experienced a smidgen of what the struggle is actually about. You know, I'm like, oh, this is what, you know, dad is, you know, standing for. This is what everybody's standing for because um, living in the city in Cape Town, I was a bit protected from racism it's like very much like here um you know the further you go out um people tended to be more narrow-minded really and uh, the change happened um very systematically there was a gradual change um like the college that I went to um for my nursing training was previously we were the first non-whites to attend there before it used to be only for whites so yeah I I definitely benefited from that change the the emotion of that do you carry that into your to your work I think that um that fight for for fairness and for justice and the injustice that comes with lack of knowledge particularly with women that, you know, you're not able to stand for something, not able to use your voice, not able to articulate what you need and someone else's agenda becomes your agenda because you simply can't speak for yourself. That brings up the same kind of response that I remember. Um, And it's about fairness. And injustice, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Astrid, we could talk forever. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Astrid, for coming in today and sharing with us. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, listeners. Well, that is the end of the show, I'm afraid. Please tune in next week, 9 o'clock in the morning, 8.55 on the AM dial. This is 3CR Community Radio. My name is Brendan Bonsack. The program is Spoken Word. Thank you for listening.
Thank you.